series that we've been working through is called Mountain Movers. And today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament figure, the prophet Elijah. And the title of the preach is Conflict on Carmel. Before I do, I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, please help me to deliver a message that is from you, that is your will and desire for our lives and bring us closer to you. Give us hearts and minds that understand and receive from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Elijah is a very interesting figure in the Bible. He is regarded as an important prophet in the Judeo-Christian tradition. He is mentioned in all Gospels and is one of the figures who meet with Christ during the Transfiguration. In fact, there were those who witnessed Jesus and asked if it was Elijah who has come back to them. So he's an important, godly figure. The dictionary definition of a prophet is a person regarded as an inspired teacher or proclaimer of the will of God. So an example might be, because of this sin, this is what will happen. The prophet is the messenger of God's will. Now, I can see the Bibles are being given out. If you have a Bible, whether it's printed or electronic, please find 1 Kings chapter 16. I'll just wait as those Bibles are given out. Have it ready on your lap so you can read with me. Now, there's too much content to read the whole story in one preach, so I'll pull out a few verses and try and fill out the gaps accordingly. And before we read the events at Mount Carmel, let me give you a little bit of backstory. See, at the time of Elijah, Ahab is king of the Israelites. And Ahab takes for himself a wife, a princess of a neighboring country, Sidon. And so Israel has a new queen, Queen Jezebel. Now Ahab is a weak king, and he's easily persuaded to stop obeying and following God, but rather worships the pagan god Baal. And Jezebel, she's a particular character because she's a seductress, and she can easily manipulate Ahab to get what she wants. So from her native country, she brings the prophets of Baal. And Ahab just gets swept along with this and begins to worship Baal. And he builds temples to Baal and encourages the Israelites to stop worshipping the God of Israel and only worship Baal. Interestingly, Baal is a god known for two things, fertility and the weather. Yeah. So as the god, it's quite, quite random, aren't they? As the god of fertility, it's very likely they would have been encouraged to indulge in sexual sin, immorality, hedonism, self-indulgence. In fact, some scholars even say child sacrifice. So we just get a picture of what's going on. The rebellious nature 
of this godly, once godly nature is now completely turned over and they're doing stuff that they should not be even going near. Now, to be God of the weather, we can see something going on here that the God of Israel uses his ultimate control of the weather to show his divinity, show his power, and he will show it and demonstrate it through drought, rain, and lightning, the things that apparently Baal is the ruler over. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16 and go down to verse 32. He, that's Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he has built in Samaria. Ahab has also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now an Asherah pole, or sometimes a tree, is an idol set up to worship the goddess Asherah. So Ahab is managing to do a really good job in making God very, very angry. Let's go down to chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. So here we see Elijah confront Ahab the king and he's passing on the message that says, God of Israel, who lives, making a clear distinction between other false gods, is going to bring on a drought for the next few years and only and will only stop at my word. So why is God doing this? Well, it's the God of Israel who has the power of the weather systems. It's the God of Israel who has the power over life and death. And God wants to draw the people back to him. So by delivering this message, well, Elijah has put his life in danger. So he can't stay put. So Elijah is instructed by God to leave and turn eastwards and hide. And to, to sustain Elijah during this time of, of famine, God provides ravens who bring him bread and meat and a brook for fresh water. Now, we, a little bit about Elijah. He's pretty equipped to deal with this kind of difficult life. We know that he's a man of the, uh, of the countryside, of the outside, of the outdoors. Yeah, so he wears a sheepskin, he's got a big beard, and he lives off the land. You know, he's a pretty, pretty tough guy. So being sent away and sort of into a cave or into an area where you think, oh gosh, that's going to be pretty tough, he can make himself comfortable. And be having the, the fresh meat being delivered to him, he can cook that and, and, and uh, hide substantially and doesn't have to go out into the wilds and hunt. So it's a safe place for him to be, and God is providing for him. Now, the next part of the story is where Elijah goes to Zarephath and meets up with the widow. And I'm going to skip it and jump to chapter 18. But please feel free to read this in your own time or in your home groups. It's purely for the time sensitivity. I want to jump to chapter 18. 
Now, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So we're just going to stop there for a second. So this famine has been going on for three and a half years. Elijah has managed to stay alive. He's avoided the hunting parties who want to murder him. He spent time with the widow. And God is about to use Elijah to illustrate God's power by bringing the rain. King Ahab and his officials would be furious with Elijah, thinking that he was the cause of so much suffering in Israel. And they would have hunted him deep into the foreign lands to find him and try and kill him, believing that once Elijah's dead, that's it, this drought will be over. But it says this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 10, Obadiah, a servant of Ahab, says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. So finally, the prophet uh, was directed by God to appear before King Ahab again. Picking it up in verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Oh, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who meet at Jezebel's table. What do they mean by Jezebel's table? It simply means they're on the payroll. You know, they work for her. So she, the, these guys there, they're part of her, of her band, if you like. Now, Elijah is about to face a great challenge or mountain and a very public one with extra pressure. Pressure. So Elijah invites the false prophets and all the people of Israel to a showdown, a spectacle to prove that Baal has no power at all against the God of Israel. And the outcome of the, sh of the showdown would demonstrate who served the true God. And the people have been summoned and are waiting to see what happens next. We can just picture that. Expectant people, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? In 1 Kings 18.21, it says this. I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people said nothing. So we've got one brave, courageous man facing 450 prophets of Baal who all want him dead. They don't want to give up their pagan god, their lifestyle, 
and intend to do everything they can to stop him. The people watching, the spectators, they don't speak. And that's because they're caught between two opinions and don't seem to be able to decide who they want to worship. They're in confusion. So they're keen to see what happens next. So we've got a picture of the scene. We're going to start with the prophets of Baal and they're going to make their altar, put the stones in place and the wood. They get the fresh meat and it's a sacrifice and they put it on top. And then they start. They start their rituals, all dressed in their clothes and they're doing their chanting. They're doing their rain dance or whatever it is they need to do to try and provoke Baal to act. They're beating their chests. They're wailing. They're looking up in the heavens. Send down fire. Elijah says this in verse 27. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or has gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blush, the blood gushed out over them. Not a pretty sight, I don't suppose. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. No reaction, nothing. Just stony silence. Despite all their efforts, there was silence. Then, when the, we get to the end of the day, it's Elijah's turn. He gathers the people around him. He places the stones to build the stone altar. He puts the wood on top carefully. Then he does something that the others don't do. Because he absolutely douses it and drenches it in water. And then he digs a trench round the outside and he pours water into that. He's determined to make this not flammable. He's determined to make this so drenched that it's impossible to be set light. Verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah steps forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What a, what a sight that would have been to see that. To be one of those people seeing God do that amazing miracle. And I love how Elijah goes through the history, isn't it? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of... Your ancestors did this. You've turned your back. The people of Israel saw for themselves beyond any doubt who was the one true God 
And Elijah, Elijah had exposed the deception of the false prophets of Baal. Elijah then ordered the false prophets to be executed. It's the Bronze Age and life is pretty brutal and, well, it certainly would have put pay to these false religions that were going on at that time. Then God's Spirit moved Elijah to pray that it would rain. And the rains came, ending the, the terrible drought. I know that's a separate section, um, but I just don't want to get into that. I want to focus on this conflict I want to draw on what we have read in this account. There's so much we can look at, but I want to focus on a few things I feel are relevant to our lives now. Now, the first point actually came from you, Ken, on Monday at the evening prayer meeting. I just want to point it out again, because it, I didn't see it until you pointed it out. You see, Elijah was just a man, in fact, if you're making notes, you can make that a subheading. Elijah was just a man. And he was the only one left because Jezebel had slaughtered all the others. And he faced the 450 prophets of Baal. And God used him to show who was the one true God. As a result, one believer became a nation of united believers as they all turned back to God. The church grew exponentially overnight. What a transformation! We are just men and women, and we face a community of unbelievers, and we need to pray for revival and face the prophets, the deceivers and the liars, the false prophets, and pray they will be exposed. In James chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, it says this, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced the crops. You see, James wants to remind us that Elijah is just a man as we are, and through earnest prayer, that's prayer we mean from the bottom of our hearts, passionate prayer that we expressed when we are moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of prayer he's talking about. And the image of the rain and the crops is symbolic of when God brings revival. That after a drought, a spiritual drought, we can expect God's Holy Spirit to pour down and expect to see a crop, to expect to see fruit. Amen. And we must pray as Elijah prayed earnestly. My next point faltering between two opinions. Now, for the purpose of this, I'm going to say that this could be an, a metaphor, an analogy to doubt. That's when we found ourselves doubting God and his power. And that can stifle us. It can stop us from seeing God at work in our lives, those around us in our community. And as we overcome doubt, put our faith in God, we as an individual can experience a peace, an inner peace. Because that being in two minds, God can do it, 
Is he able to do it? I'm not really sure. That brings peace. So we need to step out in faith. Step out in faith. Lord, I'm going to believe. I'm going to put aside doubts. I'm going to believe that you can do things. In James 1, verse 6, it says this. But we must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Just imagine that, can't you? Just, just kind of back and forth, not really committing. The next point I've titled, The Battle We Are In, is a spiritual one. And it says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And I'm sure many of you know it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Elijah faced a spiritual battle. The powers of darkness through Jezebel got through to Ahab, so Elijah, through obedience and prayer and action, was used as a messenger to bring the people back to God. My next point I've called, Ahab called Elijah, O troubler of Israel. What struck me about this account, where Ahab calls Elijah a troublemaker, is that Ahab was convinced that Elijah was the cause of the famine and the struggles that Israel was facing. He was accusing Elijah of being responsible. When the truth was, Ahab and his father's family were responsible for bringing about the famine. God was bringing judgment on Israel and was furious with Ahab and his complete rebellion against God. Now, he knew the truth, but he far too easily gave it up. You know, I can relate to this. When I've been in rebellion, even including during my Christian walk with the Lord, life isn't going too well. I will blame everything, everyone, and never myself. I blame my relationships, my partner, my work, my colleagues, the government, my school for not doing a better job, my family for not having given me better opportunities, for not being financially better off. It just goes on, you know. You never actually say, well, it could be you. Whinging, moaning, feeling hard done by. Oh, I'd be so much happier if XXX. I'd be so much happier in a better position if this was in my life. Plus, I'm feeling a spiritual drought. The truth is the problem lies with me. When I live my life not listening to God, I'm doing everything in my own strength, I have no peace. I feel weighed down by sin. And I grieve the Holy Spirit every day. I'll tell you what, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. When I fall prostrate and cry, <laughs> the Lord, he is God which I've done, which I do, I receive the peace of the Lord and Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit steps in. I get my life back on track. I stop feeling so hard done by. And I see all the things that I can be thankful for. It's a great feeling when that happens. Oh, thank you, Lord. Yes, I'm out of this 
self, whatever, feeling miserable. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, now it could be Jubilee, Paul's writing to, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves with everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, holiness isn't this. It isn't arrogant superiority. Look at me, I'm so holy, my halo is really shiny. That's not holiness. Holiness is humble obedience. And that brings peace and comfort. Now, maybe you'd be sitting here right and thinking, you know what, I think I could do with some of that. And if that is you, then at the end of this, let, let's, let's come forward and, or find someone you want to pray with and just ask for that peace and comfort if you're not feeling it right now. Because we all get there. We all, we all experience that. I used to think that... Uh, Senior people in the church didn't experience these things. Trust me, they do. <laughs> they definitely do. Okay. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that Elijah was brave. And with you at his side, could stand against the prophets of Baal and not be afraid. Lord, give us the strength to be strong like Elijah, and not fear man. The story of Elijah reminds us that you are a jealous God and that we are to have no other God other than you. Lord, reveal to us those things in our lives where we put other things first and we don't put you first so that we can come back to you, Lord, that we can fall prostrate on the floor and recognize that you are the true God. Lord, we learn on our own understanding. We're sorry, I'll start that again. Lord, we, we lean on our own understanding and don't seek you. Lord, we fail to see our own sin and we blame others, Lord. And I just repent of that in Jesus' name, Father. I just repent of that, Lord. I don't want to blame anyone. It's, I know, I know when, when my heart's not right when I'm fighting it out of pride. Father, I just ask that you humble us all so that we can come in a place with you out of humble obedience and therefore achieve holiness. Not because of what we do, but because of what you've done. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.